up the first Kings chapter number 2 tonight. As you reach for your Bible, you know I'm going to remind you we choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. It reports supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of prophecy is divine, not human in origin. We here at the river believe in the five solas. I'm going to pound it into you. Been doing it for the last six years and we're going to continue to do it tonight. Sola Scriptura, which is Latin and it means the Bible alone. Sola Fide, a Latin phrase again, which means faith and faith alone. Sola Christus, a Latin phrase once again. That means Jesus and just Jesus alone. Sola Gracia is a Latin phrase once again. That means grace and grace alone. And the crowning jewel on the crown of all theology is Sole Deo Gloria, a Latin phrase that means God alone receives the glory. He certainly will receive the glory here tonight. If you have your Bible in your hand, I want you to take your left hand, if you're left-handed, and hold on to this chunk of the Bible. You'll see in the last six years, this is how much we've gone through the Bible in the last six years, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, Sundays, and Sunday nights, actually it's more than that because you can add the book of James, Mark, and some of the other ones, other epistles in the uh, New Testament. This is what we've gone through in the last six years, and I hope to go through even more in all of it. But you might ask, what will we do when we finish? Well, we're going to turn right around and do it again. Amen? But we're looking at 1 Kings chapter number 2. The last time we were together, we saw where the prophecy of Solomon was ringing true and ringing forth. Where there was a, the prophet Nathan that came to David and said, this, this young child that's being born, he is beloved of God. He called him Jedidiah, which is also the, the beloved of Jehovah. The nickname of Solomon, which means that he was the anointed one. He will be the one who will take the throne. Now, with that prophecy well known, many people said they would try to usurp or try to take over the counsel of God. They said that, well, well God says He's going to do this, but this is what I'm going to do. Well, I want to let you know, church, that when God says something, He has a way of doing it. He, no one stays His hand. No one ties His arms. No one slaps His hand away like a little toddler. God establishes all things, and He can do anything He wants. Amen. So we see that Abijah goes and calls himself king and sets himself in a position to win over the public. Even though the public was swayed by Abijah with the 54 runners that go in front of him and says, Behold, the king is coming. Before King David even had his last breath, we see that Abijah was trying to position himself to be king. But Solomon, who was one who was prophesied over, the one that God has said, This is the one that will take the throne. He was humble in all his ways. He did not go before David and work his case and try to work with publicity or even behind the scenes and try to get secret handshakes behind the door meetings to get the position of king. But God put him right where he is. We can compare the two, Abijah, and we can compare Solomon. Abijah being one who was very beautiful, much like his elder brother Absalom. He was adorned with outward beauty. But Solomon as we'll continue to read on into chapter number 3, was adorned with wisdom, godly wisdom. Even though Abijah had the outward appearance of everything that you would want in a king, God chose this young man who was around 14 years old, the child king who was known as Solomon. Now Solomon has been put in place and God has established him there because like we say, won't he do it? God will do it every time. So we pick up in verse number 13. 
king. Last time we were together, we spoke about the death of David, the final words to David that David said to Solomon. But we see in verse 13, there's some unfinished business that Solomon will have to do to have his kingdom established. In verse 13, with Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. And he said to her, he, she said, do you come peacefully? And he said, peacefully. Now the queen mother had every reason to ask, are you coming peacefully? Because this was a contender for the throne. So she asked, and, our, and she asked innocently, hey, uh, Abijah, uh, Adonijah, do you come in peace? And he says, of course I come peacefully. But this will show us that this young man who wanted to be king, the elder, the eldest of all of David's living children, had other plans. He was known as a traitor to the king. He had actually gone and found mercy before Solomon. Now, I want you to know something, that in chapter number 3, Solomon will pray to God and ask for wisdom because he'll say, I am but a child. I don't know how to come in and how to go out. I don't know how to hold court. And this, all these things take place before Solomon ultimately surrendered and humbled himself ultimately before God. So in this 14-year-old young man, God is still working before he even asked he needed help because that's how our God works. But here Adonijah comes and he asks uh, something of the queen mother. And she has a position of influence, not just because he's 14 years old, but we see all in oriental times over in the Middle East that the queen mother has influence. And we'll see that in the book of Kings, that the mother has a place of influence over the king. And then in verse 14, he has a plan. Adonijah comes to Bathsheba and he starts to say something in verse 14. Then he said, I have something to ask of you. She said, speak. In verse 15, he said, you know that the kingdom was mine and that all of Israel fully expected to reign, for me to reign. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's for it was his from the Lord. Uh, you see in verse 14, that, verse 15, that the, uh, Adonijah actually says, uh, uh, Israel chose me. Israel wanted me to be king. But you had a play in this, Bathsheba. I know God said that Solomon would have the kingdom. But could you at least do this for me? Now, isn't it funny that he, he says it was his from the Lord, that God gave him that. So we can already read between the lines by just reading the text in context that Adonijah was actually, uh, he was jealous. And he was working his angles to get what he needed to undercut Solomon, to get the throne because of the question he asked of the queen mother. In verse 16, and now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. I want you to understand in verse 16, Adonijah, he he is a very good looking young man. He had all the features, the fierce features of his own father. And the beauty that Absalom actually had has now been adorned to him. The thing about beauty and vanity is that you have a lot of things handed to you. It's possible that Adonijah walked around with a silver spoon in his mouth while his younger brother that the prophecy was over was held in contempt. For why would he even receive the throne? He's not even the oldest. 
But then again, the culture and the world around Israel did it that way. That the hierarchy would go to the eldest. That the the king's son, the eldest, would be the one who would reign on the throne. But God just decided not to do it that way. Once again, we see uh, an alluding to Romans chapter number 19. Esau I hated, but Jacob I loved. Why? Why did God just decide to love Jacob? Why didn't he do, why why did he that he hated Esau? But the big question is why would he even love Jacob? For Jacob was a liar. And the Bible says in the Old Testament, a supplanter, that he was a con artist. He was smooth and silky. He could tuck his shoes off, which you're not even realizing it. That Jacob was sneaky. But the Bible says that God loved Jacob. That's the big part that really should wreck your mind. Why would God love Jacob? I understand not loving Esau because he was gruff. He was rough. He sold his birthright for food. He was a meathead. He was carnal. He was wicked. He was disrespecting and blaspheming before God as well as his family. So why would... Why would God even love Jacob? That's the thing. I don't know. I don't know why God would love anybody. Let's just be honest. It's not outward appearances. It's not status and trophies that impress Him. It's not what you've done for Him that impresses Him. It's not your bloodline and your DNA that you carry in your veins. I don't know why God decided to look at these two twins and decided to bless that one. And I don't know why God just decided to bless Solomon. And if you're sitting here today, there's nothing that distinguishes you from Esau or Adonijah. There's nothing that distinguishes you from them. God just decided to bless you and save you. Amen. That's warranted to glory to God. Praise His name for saving a wretch like me. I didn't do anything to earn this kind of favor, let alone any kind of grace or mercy. But we see here that it was His from the Lord. And if the Lord gives it to you, nobody ain't going to take it from you. Amen. Amen. In verse 16, And now I have one request to make of you. Don't refuse me. She said to him, Speak. And he said, Please ask King Solomon. He will not refuse you. I want you to notice in verse 17 the subtlety of him asking. When he said to the queen mother, He won't refuse you. For once, you're his mama. You're his mama. You gave birth to him. You know Solomon. I don't know if he was feeding into her pride, telling her that she has influence over Solomon. And I don't know if it was puffing her up. I know Solomon had affection for his mother. But he was feeding off of that. And she was lapping it up. Ask King Solomon. He will not refuse you to give me Ashihag. The Shunammite as my wife. We spoke about Ashihag last time. If you remember in chapter number 1 of Kings, we spoke about Ashihag being a beautiful young maiden. She was the beautiful lady with the ugly name, Ashihag. I'm going to be honest, that's an ugly name. But she was beautiful in the eyes of the king and all those that had elected her to go into the king's chamber to be a hot water bottle. There was no relations between the king and this young lady, but people could assume. They probably assumed there could have been something, but the Bible does not tell us. Well, the Bible actually says that 
that she did not lay with the king, that she was just there to attend to him in his old age. At his 70 years, he was worn down by war, by wilderness travel, running from Saul, and establishing himself as a political leader there in Israel. That many miles has put a lot of road wear on David. And David had this woman come and lay with him. This was before there was electric blankets, before there was NyQuil and anything that can help you rest at night. They placed her there to attend to the king. Now, before the eyes of Israel, it was considered that Ashiag was King's David harem. That she was a part of his, his group of women that he would go and have relations with. That she was a, a concubine in the eyes of Israel. So you can see that at this point that the queen, the mother queen, Bathsheba, might say, well, Ashiag, she's a good looking lady. She's young. Her whole life is ahead of her. Now, really, David didn't have relations with her. And here we have Ashi, uh, Adonai, he's over He's a good-looking fella. Why don't we get these two good-looking people together and let them have good-looking babies? Well, what's the problem? It's probably, it's sure to Bathsheba, who was beautiful in her own right, who now has the years on her, is trying to play matchmaker at the request of Adonijah. So now it's planted in her mind. She don't see nothing wrong with it. But I want you to understand what's getting ready to take place. Here we have the queen mother and we have a 14 year old king who was Solomon before God endowed him with wisdom. Can you see how it's starting to get a little weighty down the situation? For she will have sway over this young man. Even though he is the king of Israel, there are contenders for his throne that are working in the shadows. And now they have roped in his own mother, the queen mother, Bathsheba, when she's going to make a simple request that Adonijah gets to go and marry Haggai. Now, it's not that she was, that he was in love with her. Nowhere do we see in the text that he even loved her or even lusted after her. This was a power play. In the eyes of all of Israel. For we can remember what Absalom did with David's harem. Whenever he laid a tent because under the request of one of David's advisors that he would lay with the, the, the harem and, and all of you before all of Israel. Whenever people looked up and saw the tent will say, well there's the king laying with the former king's wives. But see, that took place in all of history. When the former king would pass, the king would inherit the king's wives that were formerly with him. That would even establish him as the monarch. So we can see here the working of Adonijah as he's asking for this beautiful lady that used to lay, Ashihag, who used to lay with David. In verse 18, Bathsheba said, Very well, I will speak for you to the king. In verse 19, so Bathsheba went to the king, to King Solomon, to speak of him on behalf of Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. You see in verse 19, the respect that Solomon has to his own mother. At 14 years old. Why do you keep saying he's 14 years old? Oh, well, I'll show you. I want you to understand that in verse, uh, verse uh, Leviticus chapter... No, we won't go there yet. Solomon's literally 14. He was the... He, when his first son was born. Because in First Kings chapter 11, verse 42 through 43, you can write that down or turn there. It's in First Kings chapter 11, verse 42 and 43. And at that time, Solomon reigned in Jerusalem all over Israel for 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. 
And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Now I want you to know that after Solomon reigned 40 years, Rehoboam took the throne. And I'll let you know that in 1 Kings 14, verse 21, now when Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah, Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, in the city that the Lord has chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Nahum the Ammonite. So we can see that even though this 14-year-old was now king, he was also a father. Now, I know, I know you're like, really? He's king of Israel and he's also a father because he reigned 40 years. And then when Jeroboam got on the throne, he was 41. Do you see the numbers? You're like, wow, that's okay. I want you to also understand that, that whenever, uh, the, the, Adonijah was asking for this beautiful concubine, she was not considered a concubine in the eyes of the people because the Leviticus 18, 7 through 8 says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife, nor the, your father's nakedness. That him asking this, and look innocent on the cover, but Bathsheba took the bait. In Leviticus chapter 20 verse 11, if a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall be put, surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Also in 1 Corinthians, Paul came across a situation going on in that church in 1 Corinthians. He actually found out of a report of a man who's taking his father's wife. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 1. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. And that the kind that is not even tolerated among pagans for a man has his father's wife. So the fact that, 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 that the, 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 the nation says, well, that's possibly, she's not a concubine, but he's making a play behind the scenes. Many people could consider her a concubine, but he's making a play for the throne. And this young man at 14 years old must understand that this is a move from his contender, from his elder brother to start a conspiracy to unroot him to become king. And we see that, uh, that, that Bathsheba is now coming to him. And in verse 19, King Solomon bows to his queen mother. In verse number, verse number 19, we also see that he, she didn't, she sat on his throne and a seat was brought for his, for the king's mother and she sat on his right. That he sat on the throne, but there was a seat for her at his right. Now, we understand the old phrase that he's my right-hand man. We, uh, that's my right-hand brother. That's my, that he's got my back. Boy, that phrase comes from times when kings would sit there and on their right was the first in charge, the people that had the greatest influence. Well, there sat his mother. She had great influence over Solomon. But in verse 20, then she said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. We see that here the young king Solomon is telling his mom, Whatever you want, I, I, I won't refuse you. He said, She said in verse 21, Let Ashihag, the Shemanite, be given to Adonja, the, your brother, as his wife. King Solomon answered his mother, And why do you ask Ashihag, the Shemanite, for Adonja? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother. And at his side are Apathar, the priest, and Joab, the son of Zuvah. 
I want you to remember the dying words of David back in, earlier in the chapter, in verse 10 on the way to 12. He, he, he tells him that, that, that the, the, before those dying words in chapter number 2, that these are the ones that are actually uh, ascend against God. And you being the sword of righteousness as you are positioned by God to shepherd the people, to instruct justice on these people. And now these people are rising up. He's seeing it with his own young eyes that these are coming up for him to pull him down into the shadows to put Adonijah into the kingship and slaughter him because his life is on the line. If you remember earlier in chapter number 2 that whenever the, the prophet came to David and told him that this young man, your eldest son, has established himself as king but he has not invited me, he's not invited this priest, he's not invited your 30 mighty men and he's not invited Solomon. For their lives were in danger. Once that king took the throne, he will get rid of all contenders. But now he understands whenever Solomon took the place of leadership, he told his brother, you will live if there is no wickedness in your heart. Do you remember back in chapter number 1 when his own brother went into the temple and held onto the altar and he cried out for mercy? And his brother told him, you will live if there will be no wickedness found in you. And now time has told the tale that is true. There is wickedness found in him, for he's making a play for the throne. In verse 23, then King Solomon swore by the Lord. He makes a pact, and he swears to no name higher than the Lord, saying, God do so to me, and more, if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. You might say, that was a little rash that he would go and kill his brother. Now, Adonijah was certainly would have killed Solomon if he had took the throne. But there had been a prophecy and placed on this young man, Solomon. It had been spoken of him by the prophets that he will reign in David's throne. Then Adonijah, much like our ambition, much like we want to do, we want to be kings of our own lives. We don't want King Jesus reigning over us. The truth is we're Adonijah, every one of us. We want to reign on, our, on the thrones of our lives. We don't want the Prince of Peace. We want us. We want our contendership. We want our name in the ballot. We want to be the ones that call the shots in our lives and even the shots of everyone around us. And then verse 23, King Solomon swore by the Lord. He, he calls no other name. He doesn't swear by his own name. He swears by God that this will take place. He says that the Lord lives, in verse 24, who has established and placed me now on the throne of David, my father, who has made a house as he had promised. Now we see in verse 24 that he has made him a house. That Solomon is saying at 14 that he has made me a house. That's where I pull from the text that says that he has established his throneship as well as gave him a house. That he has a child on the way, if not already born, which is Rehoboam. That God has established him even at this young age. It's good for Solomon to walk in the statutes of God at a young age and honor him and carry the burden of holiness and righteousness at a young age. So he says that David, my father, who has made me a house and has promised Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent Benanay, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down and he died. You say that's a little severe. Why do we get shocked as a church and as a people when justice is extended? For he is a traitor to the throne. It was his full intent to come along and 
sort of coup and reign over the very kingdom and the very words of God and just slap God in the face and take the throne from Solomon. Why do we get at it? It's our, it's our tendencies as we read in the Bible of the angel walking through Egypt slaughtering the pagans. And we go, wow, he killed all the babies. We get upset whenever we read about Sapphire and her husband, Ananias, as they're in, in the holy place and they come and throw down the money and lie to the Holy Spirit. And Peter tells them that you lied to the Holy Spirit and they strike them dead. The Holy Spirit strikes them dead. We get offended whenever God extends His justice. It's because we're all the villains when we read the text. We identify with the villains. We identify with the Absalom's and Adonijah's and Joab's. We identify with them. And we get upset when a holy God who is holy in all His ways shows us that He's holy. When Uzzah reached out and touched the cart, whenever David was transporting, transporting the ark and the oxen stumbled, he reached out and steady the cart. God rather the Ark of the Covenant fall into the dirt than an unholy man reach and touch His holy, holy sacred box. That's how, how holy our God is. And that's offensive to us as a humanity. In verse 26, And to Athathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anthon, to your own estate, for you deserve death. Athathar was also co-conspirator with Adonijah. He was one who was probably giving him the advice. Maybe it was Joab, I don't know. But Solomon sniffed it out. He found out that Athathar was the priest. Now you must understand there was two priests at the time. There was Zodak and this one. Now why did Athathar join up and not join up with, join up with uh, Solomon? Why did Zodak go to Solomon? Well, Zodak was the head priest. He was the one that was revered. Athathar was trying to... Get rid of his rival. Maybe he was tired of being listed as number two. But then the king Solomon tells him to go to his estate. That you are to be dismissed from your duties. Uh, he was leaving in shame. Abathar was the last descendant of Eli to hold the office of priest. To have the prophecy fulfilled. Uh, as we look here, he says, But I will not at this time put you to death because you carried the ark of the Lord before David my father. And because you shared in my father's affliction. Athathar, he was there when David was on the run from Saul. He was there whenever he was placed on the throne as king of all of Judah and then later of all of Israel. He was there when he ran from Absalom. He was there. He was with him in the good times and in the bad. In verse 27, So Solomon expelled Athathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that was spoken concerning the house of Eli and Shiloh. The word of the Lord that, that was spoken over uh, Eli was Samuel telling him that he will keep somebody alive in that household who will talk about how, uh, how God had cursed that line of unfaithful priests. If you remember Phineas and his brother, the sons of Eli, who were, who were sleeping with the women at the door of the temple, who were snatching the good parts of the sacrifice to make themselves fat, who was not honoring God in their hearts and in their works, God cursed them and killed them right where they stood and told Eli that later on, that those who are in your bloodline I will cut off because they're unfaithful, but I will rise up faithful servants and priests and teachers who will honor me. 
But He leaves him alive, but He leaves in shame so He can tell the story. We continue in verse 28. When the news came to Joab, for Joab has supported Adonijah, although he had not supported Absalom, Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and caught hold of the horns of the altar. Now, I want you to see something here. If Joab had nothing to do with this conspiracy, why would he run? This is Joab. This is the man who stood at the front of the armies of David. Fought many battles. He fought many wars. Nothing scared him. He ran down the enemies of David. Slaughtered them in the streets. And then he was very seasoned in his courage. But now the story comes around. The rumor gets around. And Joab runs and tries to find sanctuary. It's kind of like when you cut the lights on, the roach is scurry. If you even grow up like that, if you if you're poor, if you if you cut the lights on at the right time, the roach is like, what are you doing? They they run when there's trouble. Joab starts to run and he tries to find sanctuary at the altar. Now, isn't it ironic that Joab tries to find sanctuary there in the temple of the Lord in the tabernacle? Because he certainly, for the last 34 years, when he killed his first cold-blooded murder, I think it's Mesa, that he killed him, that then eight years later, he killed his second leader that was his contemporary. He killed him. He never went to the altar to repent. It's just that the altar was his last chance. Many times we see that God is patient with people. That He's long-suffering with people. But there is a day when God says, now my spirit will not always dwell with man. I don't want to scare anybody here, but there's a limit to God's grace and mercy. People keep putting off repentance and crying out to God for forgiveness. They'd rather run from God than be embraced by Him. They'd rather be a rebel from Him and never repent before a holy God when they can receive forgiveness and have their leisure wiped clean. But they live in open rebellion because they can be the leader of their own lives. They can be the king of their own destiny, reign over their future and make their own decisions instead of submitting to a living God. But now, all the obstacles, everything's out of the way. His only hope is found at the altar. He doesn't go there in repentance. He runs there to save his neck. This is called jailhouse salvation. People coming to Jesus when they get in trouble. Jesus, uh, save me. Get me out of this situation. She wants child support. He's messing with me. I'm upset about it. I'm going to run to Jesus. He's, he's the, he, I've done everything else. And really, I don't even want to go to Jesus. I'm going to go to Jesus because the court date's tomorrow. And I'm going to try to pray a lot. But we, God knows your heart. And the day after the court, you'll go back to your old ways. That's the story of Joab. Joab runs to the altar the whole time in the last 40 years. He never ran to the altar, never sacrificed, never worshipped there. But here we find Joab because the rumors have come around. Joab has shown his hand. He has shown that he's guilty. It's it's obvious that Joab goes there and he tries to find mercy. He's thinking, well, Solomon is a young man. He surely he wouldn't kill me, even though it was David's responsibility because I carried blood guilt. Even though he had 40 years of that guilt wearing on him, it wasn't to the conspiracy of Adonijah and him and the priests working together to undercut Solomon. That's what scared him. We see that he runs, he takes hold of the horns of the altar. 
in verse 29. And when it was told to King Solomon, Joab has fled to the tent of the Lord, and behold, he is beside the altar. I want to let you know that Joab never fled in any battle he was in. It was only when his neck's on the line. Whatever the conspiracy has come, full circle, God revealed who are the guilty parties here by the actions of Joab. He held on to the altar. In verse 29, Solomon sent Benaniah, the son of Joadiah, go and strike him down. At the altar, you might say? Yes, at the altar. So Benaniah came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, The king commands, come out. But he said, No, I will die here. Then Benaniah brought the king word again, saying, Thus says Joab, and thus he has answered me. I want you to see the difference between Joab and Ben and I. He tells the king, he's in a holy place. Do you want me to strike him down in there? He tells me to strike him down in there. The reason being, probably Joab was calling a bluff to Solomon. Maybe he thought that Solomon would show mercy towards him, even though he conspired to have him pulled off the throne through shadow work and put backdoor policies and handshakes. But Ben and I, he goes and gets permission from the king. King Solomon, do you really want me to do this? He respects God in his holy place. Because if there's blood spilled in his holy place, the place could be it could be desecrated and it would not be considered a holy place. But we understand that the king says in verse 31, the king replied to him, Do as he has said, strike him down and bury him. And thus take away from me and from my father's house the guilt of the blood that Joab shed without cause. He, he's, he's reminding us what took place. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 29, David spoke over Joab and what he did. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 29, David says, May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge, who is leprous, or who holds a spindle, or who falls by the sword, who lacks bread. I want to let you know that Solomon speaks a curse over Joab, as murderers are required to be cursed by God. Even in Exodus 34, 6-7, God tells Moses, keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations, Forgiven iniquity and transgression, transgression and sin, but all will by no, but I will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the, on the fathers, on the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. Basically, Solomon is saying here, wipe away uh, in verse thirty-two. The Lord will bring back His bloody deeds on His own head. Because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed the sword of two men more righteous and better than himself. Abner, the son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, the commander of army. So shall the blood come back on his head, the head of Joab, and on the head of his descendants forever. But David and his descendants, and for his house and his throne, there shall be peace from the Lord forevermore. Solomon remembers the words of the Torah, that the blood of Joab will be on him and his children of unrepentant sin that he has committed. Joab will die here in this holy place without repentance. If you're here today and there's something that you have not come clean to God about, if you're listening by podcast or you're physically in the building, whether you're watching or listening on the internet, if you have not come clean with God, 
and, and, and repent it and open yourself up all before God and says, God, I don't want any, any dark spots in my life. I want it all open before you. I repent of the sins I know about and the things that have slipped my mind in my blind spots, much like David cried out in Psalms 51. So we see that Solomon tells his chief executioner to kill Joab. But I want to let you know in verse 34, when Amasa, when, when Amasa was killed, this is the very city that Amasa was killed in. You see how it's gone full circle. That God had let the conspiracy reach the ears of Joab and he ran to the very city that he killed Amasa. In verse 34, Then Abinadi, the son of Jedidiah, went up and struck him down and put him to death. And he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. Now there is an old rabbi, old rabbi tale or a, a, a tradition that the rabbis used to say, if you die holding on to the horns of the altar, no matter what your sins were, you would be buried in the land of your fathers. And it's obvious that Joab is a traitor to the throne. And they should have burned his bones and thrown him in the street. But here, maybe Joab was remembering the tradition. Maybe that was his motivation. Or maybe it was one last blot he could put on Solomon as he knew in his old age. Had he fought many battles, that he knew of the holy place of the Lord, the Lord. And he knew that the people uh, considered the tabernacle a holy place. And if his blood was spilled there, they would hold in contempt the king for spilling uh, the blood of Joab in the holy temple. And say, well, I can't believe the king did that. And bring up a complaint against the king. Or it's just possible that Joab head onto the, the altar and was calling a bluff. Much like we do. We bluff God every day. When we have unrepented sin. I want you to know that Joab had 40 years to repent. But he did not. Every day he was hedging his bet. I'll live through the day. He ain't going to get me. We see here that he was, he was killed and he was buried that very day. And there shall be peace from the Lord forevermore. That now the house of David has peace because it was the responsibility of David and his throne as well as his descendants to execute the justice of God. And it's much like the head of households. If you're a, a, a man, you're the head of the household. I know our culture don't like to hear that. But then again, uh, you might say, well, well, are you saying that women are less? No, they're different. They're complimentary. They compliment each other. Men are the head of the house, so the women are the helpmates. They help him whatever he's doing. He's not better, he's not greater, and he's not stronger. But that's the order of creation that God designed. In a culture where we can't decide what's a woman or a man. When the Bible tells us exactly what it is, but we want to toss the Bible out because that's so old-fashioned. We're so progressive. We can't distinguish between which bathroom to use. We got generations now who have their own pronouns. They're they're not him and her. They're Zims now. They call, you call me a Zim. That's my preferred pronoun. But I want you to know that facts and truth are not opinions. You can have an opinion on something that can vary from one person to another. But facts and truth do not change. The truth is, the man is the head of the household. He is the high priest. He is to shepherd his family, to lead them beside the still waters at the commands of God. Not to lead her to the bedroom, but lead her into the sanctuary to worship a living God. Amen, preacher. So where are you going with this? Well, we see here that Joab 
Even though he had years of places to repent. He, he had the blood of guilt on his hand for a murder. The earlier one, his brother, the young man Abijah, he had traitors. He had traitor tendencies. And now we have a murder Joab getting justice before a holy God. And we go, oh, I can't believe that. That justice has now been served. Now we see that he goes down and dies in the very place where he killed a massa. God has a way of going full circle and bringing justice to the land. In verse 36, And the king came and sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there. And do not go out from here any place, whatever. For on the day that you go out and cross the brook Kidron, now for certain you shall die. Your blood will be on your own head. And Shimei said to the king, What you say is good. As my lord the king has said, so will your servant do. So Shimei lived in Jerusalem many days. At this point, I'm not sure... I'm not sure how old Solomon was. I don't know if all these things took place right back to back. But the Bible does say that God established the throne of Solomon. So it's very possible this took place. I want you to remember that Shimei is a blasphemer. He is the one who blasphemed God as well as David. God's anointed as the king and the shepherd over Israel. And he deserved it. But David swore in his kind heartedness. And he was actually wrong to do it. He says, you won't die. But that oath is not placed on Solomon. Solomon didn't make any oath to Shimei. So he tells him, build your house in Jerusalem and don't leave. You're on parole. You're on house arrest. Don't leave the city. Verse verse 39, But it happened at the end of three years that two of Shimei's servants ran away to Iskath and Mecca, king of Gath. And it was told to Shimei, Behold, your servants are in Gath. Shimei rose and saddled a donkey and went to Gath to seek his servant. Shimei went and brought his servants from Gath. And when Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and returned, and the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord? And Solomon warned you, saying, Know for certain that the day you go out and to any place, whatever, you shall die. And you said to me, What you say is good, I will obey. Why then have you not kept your oath to the Lord and the commandment which I commanded you now? And the king said to Shimei, You know in your own heart all the harm that you did to, my, did to David, my father. So the Lord will bring back your harm on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed. And the throne of David shall be established for the, the Lord forever. And the king commanded Benani, son of Jedidiah. And he went out and struck him down and he died. You might say, that's a... That's a little harsh, don't you, don't you think? I want you to remember Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30-31. For we know who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I want to remind you that whenever Joab killed Amasa, it was found in 2 Samuel 20, verse 8. And we're at the great stone at Gibeon, which is the place where he died. Amasa came to meet him, and Joab was wearing a soldier's garment. And over it was a belt and a sword and a sheath fastened to his thigh. And he went forward and fell out, and he stabbed him in the belly. Joab showed no mercy in his life. In James chapter 2, verse 13, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Grace triumphs over judgment. It had been 34 years since Abner was killed and 8 years since Amasa was killed and Joab did not repent. 
We see here that Shimei spent years and he did not repent to God or come and apologize to the blasphemies he said to Solomon or to David. The traitor and the murderer and the blasphemer were killed in this moment. You might say, well, that's a little harsh, preacher. That's what they were in their hearts. Adonijah was a traitor. He was going to come under the king and cut him off at the knees and take the throne. The murderer Joab, his life showed that he was a murderer. He was always in the position of leadership. And every time he killed somebody, it's to secure his leadership. And a murderer always looks out for number one, looks out for himself. The blasphemer does not honor God. He doesn't care what God has to say, let alone what the king says, because the king warned him, don't go anywhere. It's not that it slipped his mind. He knew Solomon. Maybe he was familiar with Solomon. Maybe at this point Solomon was 17 to 21 years old. He's a young guy. He's not going to do that to me. And he leaves town and goes and gets his slaves and comes back. But then we are shocked whenever the king exercised his full authority. It's just like us to be shocked. As in, the water, as in the water face reflects face, so is the heart of man reflects the man. Proverbs 27, 19. That we are sinners, not because we sin, but because sin's in us. We are liars. We are thieves. We are murderers. That's why we do that. Because we are adulterers. That's what we do. Preacher, are you full of good news tonight? Yes, I am. In Romans chapter 2, verse 5, but because of your hard and impotent, and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath when the Lord's judgment shall be revealed. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, I want to let you know, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. For the traitor who's here tonight, the murderer and the blasphemer, it should have been us that God has already dealt with. I just want to turn your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You need to turn there because you have to see it with your own eyes to believe it. It's too good to not be true. It's too good to not be true. We're not talking about fairy tales here and ideas and philosophies. We're talking about facts here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11. Paul is writing to the church in Corinthians. And he might as well have been writing to the church in Princeton tonight. The church on Richardson Bridge Road. He's writing to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. To look at those quickly. My name came up quite a few times in that list. And I'm sure yours did too. You don't have to shout out your sin. The ones who who are sexually immoral, idolaters, living for other things other than God, adulterers, nor sodomites or homosexuals, nor thieves, those who are greedy, who are drunkards, who are revilers or swindlers, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, is what the text says. But he's not done in verse 11. And such some of, some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. 
Tonight, we don't stand in judgment over Benajah, over Joab, or Shimei. We don't fold our arms and go, mm, look at what they did. Mm, they deserved everything they got. It's, yes, it's truth. That's justice. They got what they deserve. But we sit here tonight, we don't get what we deserve. We don't, we don't sit on our high horse and look at other people and say, yeah, serves them about right. Good thing God finally got them. No, we shake and tremble and we wonder why God has shown us such great mercy. Amen. Because you either were or you are. You were a liar. You were a thief and adulterer. You were a sodomite, a homosexual, a lesbian. You were a thief. You were a drug addict. You were those things. You were. You were You were one who, who had idols and things and thrones in your life that you bowed down and worshipped. You, you were one who was a reviler and a swindler. Or you are. You are a thief. You are a swindler. You are a liar. You are a murderer. Either or, where are you? Where do you find yourself? If you were those things, I want to remind you that you were washed. You're clean. You're sanctified is what the text said. And now you're justified. That's a legal term. That means the charges against you are now dropped. Your ledger is now clean. You are forgiven. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of God. As we look at the text tonight, we see how, how Solomon dealt the sort of execution for the traitor. I, I've betrayed Christ more than I can even count. For the blasphemer, I've blasphemed a holy God with my mouth and with my actions. <laughs> and I, 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 I've been the unfaithful priest. I've done that too. But He's shown mercy on me another day. Thank you, Lord. He has shown grace towards me. That doesn't make me cocky and arrogant. That humbles me. Like I always say, your past will either haunt you, you remember what you did, what you said, where you went, or it will humble you. Oh, I know I deserve His wrath. But He has washed me, sanctified me. That means He's cleaned me. And now He's justified me. And I'm just waiting till the day when He glorifies me when I can lay at His feet in His glory. With that being said, there's no room for judgment for anybody here. I'm not busy looking at your sins. I'm dealing with my own. I'm the biggest sinner I know. And I hope that's true of you. That No, not the preacher's the biggest sinner, but you. You're the biggest sinner you know because you know you. And you know you don't deserve grace and mercy. You deserve the very pits of hell. But in His mercy and His grace, He has washed you and He's cleaned you. And He claimed you for His very own. I believe it's the book of Malachi chapter 7. He says He drops our sin in the sea. That He doesn't go there and He doesn't fish anymore. That part's not in there, but I like to add it. He doesn't pull back our old sins and throw it in our face. He forgives us and He washes us and He claims us as His own. To God be the glory. Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray.